You are listening to Politically Entertaining, your Cliff's Notes to American Politics. And now your host, Frank and today We have, I would like to say, two special guests right now. And uh, I can't thank them enough, enough for coming on. Uh, first, we have Dr. Geraldine Worthy, who is a clinical psychologist. She's earned her doctorate at Howard University, undergrad at Maryland, Go Terps. Say hello to the people for us, Dr. Worthy. Hi. Actually, it's Tuskegee. Our next guest is Marilyn. <laughs> oh, she's Marilyn. Okay, so I got that mixed up. So Dr. Schmeichel Mills, who is the neuropsychologist, went to Howard, and you're the one that went to Maryland? That's me. Yep. Okay. Air okay, Well, I want to thank you ladies for coming on. Um, before we get started and we get into the questions, uh, Dr. Worthy, Dr. Worthy, I believe you had, I guess you can say, like a disclaimer that you wanted our listeners to know before we got into some of the questions yes. and answers. Yes, I just want to make sure that it's clear that all the information provided by Dr. Mills and myself is purely informational and psychoeducational and does not replace seeking your own help with a mental health professional and that any information that we share or questions that we answer doesn't actually constitute the initiation of a therapeutic relationship and that if you feel like you need support, it's really important to reach out on your own to someone local to you to find mental health support. Could not have said that better. So appreciate you getting that out the way so that our listeners can know that. Um, so I wanted to start off with uh, you, Dr. Worthy. Uh, and my first question to you is, um, I could lie and say that so the listeners could know, but this is also for myself as well, because I don't know the answer to this. Okay. What, <laughs> what are the differences in a clinical in clinical psychology versus psychiatry? Because I think both get used interchangeably. So are there any differences between the two? Yeah, they definitely get used interchangeably, but they are not interchangeable. Um, <laughs> they're definitely two different disciplines, uh, related fields, but definitely different. So Psychiatrists are actually medical doctors. They go to medical school, and the first four years of their their training and residency is all the same stuff that your GP had. And then they continue on to specialize in psycho psychological health and psychopharmacy and things of that nature. So a lot of the uh, psychiatry people will do a lot of their work long term in things like medication management. Uh, psychopharmacological drugs, the medications used to treat mental health disorders. Um, they also receive some psychotherapy training. Most don't do extensive training, but those that do um, also sometimes will offer what we call combo therapy, where they provide mental health treatment and medication management simultaneously, but most opt to, to just do the medication management. Psychologists are people who go on to graduate school who obtain professional degrees, a PhD or a PhD. Um, so a doctor of philosophy or a doctor of psychology and specialize and train in psychological disorders and psychotherapeutic technique. Um, and we spend a lot of our time doing that. And it's very research based um, for the Ph.D. in particular. It's very research based, being able to consume and produce research that helps apply that clinical skill and a lot of in-person clinical <laughs> applications. And so. If you're looking for med management and things of that nature, people who like, if you think that you need um, a medical professional to help with med medicine, medication for your mental health, or you've been referred to by a psychologist or your general practitioner, 
for med management, you would need a psychiatrist. Um, if you're uncertain, if your symptoms, your mental health symptoms are medical or something else, you know, if you think there's an underlying medical condition like hypothyroidism can mimic some symptoms of depression, or there can be neurological issues that present with depressive symptoms. If you feel like there may be something else going on, then a psychiatrist, or really in that case also a neuropsychologist, but a psychiatrist would be well suited to sort those out for, for that person. And if you have a complicated medical history, or if you're a person who has a more severe mental illness, like schizophrenia or bipolar disorder, which almost always requires the medication support, you're going to need a psychiatrist in addition to any other mental health support you have to kind of help manage that medication appropriately. I got you. So in that answer, you kind of touched on um, what neuropsychology is. And Dr. Mills, I know that's your field. So for you, I wanted to know what are the specific differences in your field, neuropsychology, versus what Dr. Worthy described and what a clinical psychologist does? So um, a neuropsychologist, we are clinical psychologists by training. So we can do everything that a clinical psychologist can do. We do get an additional two years of specialized training postgraduate, so after we have our PhD or PsyD in neuropsychology. And neuropsychology, it's just as the name suggests, it's really just a combination of neurology and psychology. So we work with people, children, adults, the elderly who have some type of condition that is affecting their brain. Um, that could be something as significant as have, have, having had a stroke or having dementia um, to having a learning disability to having ADHD. But anyone that's had anything that can change their brain structure or brain functioning and we assess them to understand what those changes are, um, cognitive changes or so thinking abilities, language, memory, attention, um, and our emotional, our behavioral personality changes. People would be referred to us. We would assess them, diagnose them, and then send them back to the referring provider with recommendations on what to do. And now it's transitioning more where we're not just assessing and diagnosing. We're also providing the interventions, the treatment. So you see many neuropsychologists who provide cognitive rehabilitation um, for the patient and the family. So that's helping them optimize their functioning in home and in the community. And we also provide psychotherapy as well. Okay. So my um, my second question to you was going to be, are, are people born with behavior issues or can a traumatic incident cause it? And you mentioned a stroke. So we know like a stroke is something that can happen versus ADHD, which I guess people are born with, uh, so to speak. And you can correct me on that. But my overall question is uh, something like an something like ADHD. Is that something that can be, quote, cured over time with a certain amount of treatment? Or is that something that you learn you have to learn to live with and continue treatment uh, the rest of your life? Yeah, so that's a good question. And, and just because you specifically mentioned stroke, I do want to say it's possible to have a stroke in utero. So you can be born having already had a stroke. Um, but there's we have a couple different issues with this. So there's also the the long controversial topic of nature versus nurture. Um, and then we have genetic predispositions. Um, so I can be born, for instance, schizophrenia. I can be born with 
um, the genetic predisposition to have schizophrenia, but never actually be diagnosed with it if I don't have the symptoms. Um, but I could have a um, significant traumatic event that results in a psychotic break, and then all of a sudden I have a psychotic disorder that escalates to schizophrenia. Um, so you can be born with the disorder. You mentioned ADHD. Yes, you can be born with it, but it can also be developed over time based on experiences, based on um, health factors, you know, just being healthy in general, um, based on our genetic makeup. In terms of whether things can be cured, um, you know, I, it's not the best analogy, but I think it's one that we can all understand. With cancer survivors, we talk about things being in remission often, right? right? So they no longer have cancer, but it's always known that there's a possibility that they can redevelop it. And I think the same thing is true for psychiatric disorders. So uh, when Dr. Worthy was talking about different treatment, whether it's psychotherapy or medication management, a person can absolutely learn to live and thrive and have absolutely no symptoms of the disorder. Um, and many of us would say, yes, I'm cured. I no longer have depression. But that doesn't necessarily mean that I will no longer have a depressive episode if there's something that occurs. Right. So it, it can sound, be either or kind of. Okay. Sorry to, sorry to cut in. It sounds no. almost like um, what they say about uh, alcoholics and, I guess, drug abusers that you're never all the way cured. You always like one episode or one drink away. So uh, I think I got your analogy. Mm -hmm. um, did you want to add to that? I just want to add one thing because ADHD is like a thing that triggers me. <laughs> okay. Okay. Um, Jump in. <laughs> just kind of be, and to kind of lead to what you were saying or to link to what you were saying um, about the ADHD, like is there a cure or, you know, is it born with it. And it's a neurological condition, right? If you're having some true attention deficit, you're having issues with your higher level executive functioning, your organization, your planning, right? Your ability to inhibit certain impulses, right? Mm -hmm. If that thing is happening organically for you, right? You know, people like back in my day, we just spanked the ADHD out of people, which, right, you know, right. is not, not a real thing, right? <laughs> correct, correct. Um, but there are behavioral interventions. And I think a lot of people are either reluctant to receive support because they feel like the first thing, first line of defense is going to be medication, which for some children, it may get there, but there are a lot of behavioral interventions uh, and then behavior parenting strategies that can be implemented that help lessen the impact of these symptoms across the span of your life, which is really what a lot of mental health is about, right? You know, like she would say, Dr. Mills would say, you go into remission with something if you want to make that a not analogy, right? And it's kind of mm -hmm. the same thing. You've learned to manage and control the symptoms better. And that red dye number 40 will not be the onset of your ADHD, nor will the omission of said red dye number 40 be a cure-all if you have a condition. I just wanted to throw that out there. <laughs> no problem. And since you, and since you jumped in, um, I had a two-part question for you, and then I'm going to let Frank jump in since I've been hogging all the time so far. But before I pass it to him, I wanted to ask you, Dr. Worthy, what are some affordable means for people that may want treatment? Because I think when people think of your field, they think cost and, oh, I can't afford that. And also, you know, black people have a stigma uh, of not seeking treatment as much as we should. In your opinion, have black people gotten better in seeking help 
in that field? Have you seen more black, um, I guess, uh, what do you call them, clients or patients? Patients, rather. <laughs> um, well, so the standard on calling them patients or clients changes from year to year, particularly on which setting that you're you're seeing the person in. Um, mm-hmm. But to speak to the, the first question in terms of affordability of mental health care, um, and I think Dr. Mills can probably tack on to the end of this just about kind of in her field, but I know speaking strictly in the in the clinical sense, um, it, it can be expensive. And even though there were some provisions outlined in the Affordable Care Act to make sure that insurance policies did cover mental health, the fact is not everybody is insured still. And even some of those policies don't adequately cover and their families who just don't have access. So I think part of the issue of affordability is, is knowing what's what. And that goes back to, well, do I need a psychiatrist or do I need a psychologist? Can I see a a licensed clinical social worker, you know, because there's a broad heading of psychotherapists and psychiatrists, psychologists, uh, licensed clinical social workers will fall under that. And a lot of people don't know that there are different disciplines and different specialties. And I think that knowing and being aware of that, having that information helps people find more affordable treatment options that work for them. Um, because given seeing a psychiatrist is going to be your most expensive option. And so if it's not necessary, you know, if you're not having a more severe medical issue, if your medical mental health issue is not tied intrinsically to your medical health, your physical health, then I think you might be okay seeing a psychologist, which is also an expensive endeavor. <laughs> um, but if it's just financially feasible, there are things to be aware of, like, hey, there are there are counselors available. There are licensed clinical social workers whose fees may be a little less. There are community health programs that may provide um, more affordable health services. And even if you're like, I know I really need the psychologist, it's important to call the office because psychologists are very aware when the communities around them don't have a lot of money. And, you know, if you can show evidence of needing the financial support, financial hardship, a lot of them will work on a sliding scale, meaning like, yes, it normally costs, you know, X amount of dollars per hour in the state and area where I live. But given that you're given your financial hardship, you could pay significantly less based on this is just what you can afford to give. And it's kind of a good faith thing, right? People are more invested in things they pay for. So you will compensate something, but it may be much less than the going rate. So there are ways to find affordable mental health. But again, a lot of people aren't aware of this, which actually leads into the second part of your question, right? Is treatment getting better with African-Americans? And I think part of that is knowledge of your options, right? You're not going to go if you don't know what's available and what it means. Correct. Um, and if you don't know what, you know, you don't know what's available in your area, you don't think you can afford it. So those, those do service barriers. I will say that there, there is a difference um, in the African-American population. Like we are getting more on board with coming to therapy, but there still is a longstanding stigma, right? You go to see the psychologist or the psychiatrist. Oh, you crazy, right? Mm-hmm. Nobody wants the stigma, so nobody gets treatment. Or there are the issues of, you know, we, we don't tell what's going on in the house. You know, Uncle June June's always been like that. He's just touched. He's not crazy. We don't tell people about that. You know, you keep it in house. You keep it a secret until the person never really gets the support they they need. And there's definitely a dichotomy when you look at older African-Americans versus younger African-Americans. Um, you know, we have a kind of this old standard of like, you know, you can't be praying to God and still be going to mental health. Like you won't believe on God or what, you know, and <laughs> We have to get to a mind place where we're like, you know what? You can have both. <laughs> you can believe in praise right. and go see your therapist. They are not mutually exclusive. Um, and I think younger African-Americans are understanding that. Certainly 
um, going to seek mental health is becoming a much more normalized thing and more commonplace in the culture. And I think younger African-Americans are benefiting from that. Um, that said, you know, we know there's a longstanding medical mistrust of African-Americans, right? You know, they have this Tuskegee syphilis study and other, we, we've been really the, the guinea pigs of a lot of medical experimentation for the benefit of all mankind, but at the expense of African-Americans in particular, gynecological mm -hmm. procedures, you know, and so there's a lot of mistrust when people say, you know, we'll go to the doctor and people are uncomfortable with it because, you know, they're worried, what will they be subjected to? Will they be dehumanized? Will they be supported? And so I think it's really important for all mental health therapists to kind of be aware of that sort of stigma so that when people come in, they have as much of a positive experience as possible to keep the trend going forward of more and more African-Americans coming in. Because it's slow going, but there is a trend in more African-Americans uh, African reaching out for mental health. And certainly, I have seen an increase in the number of African-Americans that I support and treat. That's good. That's good. All right. Now that Byron is taking up all the airtime, I'm gonna jump in here. Um, <laughs> so this this question this question is for it's not really a I'd say it's more of a question statement. Um, if this is for both Dr. Worthy and Dr. Mills, um, first of all, I first, let me just celebrate you guys. You guys, I just love hearing you speak. It's just it's great to hear people that are knowledgeable in the African American African American community talking about this and not making it a shameful thing. I know that, like you mentioned in the past, is praying it away and things like that. And, and those are things, like you said, that exist and, and understanding that people like you are God's gift, right? That, you, that people have given, God's given you the abilities to be able to treat some of the issues that people have and marrying those things together, I think is so important. So I'm just very happy to have you ladies on the episode because of that. Um, I'll start with a little bit of sharing. Um, my, my mental illness runs in my family. There's, um, you know, somebody close to me who has it. My parents actually are in uh, something called NAMI. I'm sure you guys have heard of it, the National Alliance on Mental Illness. And they've learned a lot yeah. about um, helping those who suffer from it and also how to cope with it as, you know, being in the family. Um, my question to you is when mental illness, what are the things that you do and tell the families who are, are basically trying to support people who are dealing with illness because we, we talked about you talked about the medication you talked about different treatment options but a lot of times there's issues with the family like no nah, ain't nothing wrong with him or you know just do this or no you know this like how like do you what are the experiences you've had dealing with families as you support people who are coming to grips with having a mental illness dr mills do you want to lead in on this one and if there's anything else i'll follow up Sure. And I think we'll both probably have um, comments about this since we both have experience working with families. Um, you know, I think one of the important things that you have to do when working with the patient and their family is to normalize the experience that they're having. Um, and the patient is not, I call them patients because I'm in a hospital setting, but patient, client, what have you. Um, it's not just the, the patient themselves because they have to go home and live within this live within the, excuse me, live within this environment that is critical to their mental health. So um, normalizing what the family is feeling, whether it's embarrassment, whether it's fear, whether it's shock, um, whether it's just, you know, relief at knowing that something that whatever their family member is experiencing has a name. Sometimes, you know, they're just happy to have a name for whatever their family member is going through. But normalizing those emotions validating those emotions 
questions. And I had mentioned earlier um, intervention and psychotherapy. That doesn't just include the patient. Ideally, you want it to include their home setting. Um, and Dr. Worthy can absolutely touch on this when talking um, when working with children, how important it is to include their family and, if possible, even um, their immediate community, their teachers, and their their treatment. And the same thing um, happens with adults. I work with a lot of elderly patients um, who have had strokes, who are being diagnosed with dementia, and most of my intervention is actually with their children or with their spouse, less so with the parent, with the patient themselves, helping them understand what they can do in their home to make things safe, um, helping them understand that it's okay if, you know, they occasionally feel burdened. It's okay if they feel grief and their loved one is still there. That's just as important as working one-on-one um, -on -one with the patient. There are also, um, this kind of ties in a little bit to um, the question before about cost. Um, a lot of places off also offer group counseling sessions for patient, patient families. Um, whether they're dealing with grief or whether they're dealing with substance abuse, whether they're dealing with, um, in my case, memory loss. So caregivers know that I'm not the only one going through this and they can share resources. They can share support strategies. They also have a place where they can vent. Um, we call it caregiver burnout and it's real. Um, it's, there's not as much research as we would like, but that's an area that is slowly picking up. So yeah, we absolutely do pay a lot of attention to what the family is experiencing and help them go through their own journey just as we're helping the patient. Dr. Uh, Worth, do you want to add to that with the children specifically? Yeah, I 110% agree with everything Dr. Mills just talked about with helping the family feel supported and normalized. And particularly, I'm glad you brought it up. I was also going to mention about the caregiver burnout. And I think it's really important to understand that it's a real thing and, and then encouraging families to seek their own support. That yes, your, your loved one has a disorder and that they need treatment, but you also need your own support. And with children in particular, it can be hard because with parents, um, because I work a lot with children and adolescents, there's a lot of guilt um, associated with the child having a disorder, especially in among my families who have children who have uh, autism, who are on the spectrum, a lot of guilt about, you know, what did I do to cause this? Was it what I ate? You know, was it because I waited till I was older to have children? There's, there's a lot of what ifs. Um, and none of those things are the cause of, of well, <laughs> certainly not your diet. It's not, it's not that cause, right? They're genetic and inheritable conditions. But there's a lot of a guilt of, well, how come my child is so depressed? How come my child is so anxious? And there's a lot of grief. In addition to just the stress of supporting a child, even children with severe behavioral disorders, it is exhausting for parents. I mean, the number of parents who just come in when I check in with them to check in about their child and their progress, they plop down in the chair. And it's a lot. And so just empathizing with the families, the mothers, the fathers, even the siblings who get less attention because their sibling has a mental illness that takes up so much of their parents' energy that they necessarily end up with less of their parents' time. Letting those people know that you are important, you are seen, your stress is seen, and there are sports available to you, and, and then giving them these skills they need in order <clears throat> to cope is, is just this huge thing to help support the families and help them understand their role and giving them the psychoeducation to understand that this person's not purposely doing this. This really is a manifestation of whatever they're going through. Wow. That was, that was an answer. That was a great answer. And like I said, I encourage you listeners, if you go back and listen to that part again, that was really a lot, a lot in there. Uh, the, the last question I guess I have for you ladies is 
you know, when you see when you see the families, I guess, struggling, going through these things is. I'm, try, I'm trying to make this make sense. Is is there sometimes you mentioned it can go into remission, but sometimes obviously you're just dealing with the situation. Are there ever situations where it's so bad or it, the person has to be institutionalized and there's really nothing that you can do as a caregiver and it's just there's not a way back the damage has been too too much and then how and then how do you cope with help people cope with that that man you know we thought we were going to get help but now the real best thing is for them to be you know kind of under supervision um you know by by you know professionals is that something that you have had to do often and and what are the ramifications of that um, you know, in regards to people maybe coming forward, not wanting to have to deal with that reality that maybe there is a serious problem that, that can't be uh, dealt with in a way that maybe satisfies them. Yeah, so my experience with that is probably a little bit different than Dr. Worthy because I'm in neuropsychology. Um, I know when I was doing just um, psychotherapy with children, you know, the goal is not to quote unquote, institutionalized indefinitely. Sometimes um, children or even adults have to be hospitalized either voluntarily or involuntarily to ensure that they're safe, um, if, especially if there's, you know, suicidal behaviors, homicidal behaviors. But that's the goal is for that to be temporary and then for them to be reintegrated back in their community. In neuropsychology, though, we all, all I mean, it's pretty often that we're looking at someone who um, whatever their neurological disorder is, it's now become a safety issue where they can't safely live alone. So if we think of someone, for instance, who has the later stages of dementia, um, whether it's Alzheimer's disease or whether it's like FTD or something, um, they can't cook because they'll leave the stove on. They wonder. Um, and we do oftentimes have to speak to the family about what's the plan? Where are they going to go? It's not necessarily institutionalized, but it might be in a nursing home that includes, you know, 24 hour lockdown where they can't get out of the building for safety issues. And that's a hard thing to discuss. Um, ideally, and this might be luck on my part, because with neurological disorders, we can typically know what's coming. So we encourage the family to plan ahead while their loved one is still capable of making their own decisions. What does this person prefer to do? Where would this person prefer to go? Unfortunately, because of how um, the country is set up in terms of um, insurance, we've already discussed costs. There aren't that many options for lower income and middle income families in terms of long term care. So the earlier we can plan, the better. But it is a hard discussion. No one wants to leave their home. No one wants to lose their independence. Um, and as Dr. Worthy talked about before, the stigma that's associated with mental health, there's also a stigma that's associated with having to go into a nursing home um, or a facility such as this. So we try to discuss it early. Um, we make sure they have facts and not just whatever information they find on Google or where, you know, wherever else in the media. Um, we try to link them up with social workers, caseworkers, if possible, to make sure that they have all the options. And going back to kind of therapy with the family in terms of whatever emotional process they're going through, um, many of them feel like they're abandoning their family member at that point. And we have to work through that grief process as well. But it, it, to be institutionalized, it's it's very different now than 
what it used to be even just a few decades ago. And I think actually what's probably still portrayed in the media, we try not to do that unless it's absolutely necessary. And even then, it's the goal is for it to not be a permanent situation. Yeah, I would I would co-sign on all of that. I think one of the things to be aware of, unfortunately, I think maybe initially the move was done with the best of intentions, but not with enough political and legal follow up to make it really work well. Is a lot of the inpatient long term psychiatric hospitals, the way people think about them, the way they might be portrayed in the media, the movies. Um, don't really exist in that way anymore. A lot of them have been closed. Um, yeah. we, I, before I started my PhD, I worked um, in an inpatient facility. And some of those people, I had a, an entirely elderly caseload. Some of those people had been there since they were in their 20s. And they were now in their 60s and 70s. And I was there working in my 20s. <laughs> so they'd been there a long time. Their family members had long since passed. And when the governor... Um, close those facilities, like Shamika said, those families had not planned, they had not made arrangements, and it became part of my job, even though it was mental health support, was to reach out and say, like, hey, you need to get on this. Your your guardian, you know, your their parents who have since passed on have left you as custodian of this person. You need to figure out what we've got to do because they're saying that we need to integrate these people into community. It's not fair for people to be institutionalized their entire life, which I can agree with. You know, like Dr. Mills said, it's not intended to be a long term term permanent forever solution, right? It's intended to get you the help and support you need for whatever duration you need it and then to reintegrate you. And the push was just to push everybody out. There was no real graceful you know, transition for that. The, the plan really was not done well. Um, and so a lot of people just got spit out into these community homes of varying quality and there was not as much state oversight as I think there should have been to really ensure these people were getting their needs met and the safety. And so they're reeling it back in a little bit. And there are places people can go if they need psychiatric support, if they need long-term help to get over something. You know, they might be inpatient in units for months at a time, but it won't be decades of their life gone the way we imagine it. You know, the old sanitariums that you see in creepy fictional movies, you know, don't really exist in that in that way anymore. Um, but there, there are inpatient solutions. And like Dr. Mills mentioned, that after people transition out, it's really important to talk to families about next steps. And even with children, when they're really young, when children have particularly severe disabilities, I have to have really uncomfortable and difficult conversations with parents. Like your child will not be able to support themselves independently in the future. And unfortunately, tomorrow is not promised as a parent. You need to set up conservatorship, guardianship. You need to make financial plans and living plans for how your child will be cared for when you pass on. If you pass when your child is 30 and they're still functionally at the age of 10 or 12, they're not going to be able to care for themselves in the way that would best support them. And you need to arrange for that while you're still here. Okay. We're, dis we're discussing uh, mental health and treatment with Dr. Shamika Mills, neuropsychologist, and Dr. Geraldine Worthy, clinical psychologist. And ladies, uh, I think Frank can agree with me on this. I don't think we have gushed over a guest since maybe Dr. Claiborne Carson of uh, Stanford University when we had him on. Yeah, I, we both were just yeah, thoroughly impressed. We, we were so impressed with him. And you guys have, have reached that level for us. So I just want to, again, I really am thankful that you guys came on here. I, 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 actually, I actually have, have about... Another, I actually have another question because they were so good. I can't, I can't, I can't, I can't, I can't let them get off the show just yet. 
Um, I, this, this is a question oh. that's always brought, I've always been wondering is you've talked so thoroughly about the whole, you know, system of how people are cared for families and everything goes on with it. How many people are really out there who are undiagnosed with mental illness, who are living with it day to day? Like, I, I know you maybe can't give a number or a percentage, but like, is, is, is it, a, is it a real problem? Is it an epidemic of people that probably are being not treated for these illnesses that might not be like, like you say, severe, but they could be correctable and help people. Is there a large percentage yeah. of the population that is suffering from mental illness? Absolutely. I mean, t to be honest, and in, in my opinion, everyone needs to go at least see a therapist once in their life. Oh, yeah. um, at one point or another, we probably have all been able to be diagnosed with depression or anxiety. That's only something that is two weeks long and then you can be diagnosed. Um, a lot of people don't talk about it, especially, I think, within the black community. And, and everyone has touched on that. We don't talk about things. We gloss over things. We hide things because, you know, we are supposed to be strong and we just have families to support and things that we have to do. But absolutely, I think um, we're completely undiagnosed in many things. But unfortunately, we're also overdiagnosed in um, in other disorders. But um, I encourage everyone, my family, my friends, strangers, hey, go see a therapist. I mean, we all need to improve our coping skills. We all need someone to vent to. We all need someone to put things in a different perspective. Um, we deal with a lot of psychosocial stressors, work, family, finances, politics. I mean, all of that stuff can weigh down. Mm -hmm. And we do know that our mental health absolutely directly impacts our physical health, which then goes and further impacts our mental health. So, you know, we're kind of in this cyclical nature of just unhealthiness, if I can say that. So, yeah, I think we're underdiagnosed and I think everyone at some point should see a mental health professional. I, I completely concur with that. I think mental health exists on a continuum. Some days we're on the super healthy end and sometimes we're, we're a little bit further along and sometimes we just need the support to get through there. And I think if people learn to understand their mental health, as something that everybody in America has, and mental illness as something else, that everybody would be much more comfortable seeing a mental health practitioner just to make sure that it's like a checkup for your body, right? You don't go without ever seeing the dentist, without ever seeing your, your regular general practitioner, right? At some point, you check in on your body, and your mind is no different, right? It doesn't mean something's wrong. It really is, like Dr. Mills said, just a way of finding skills and support because life can be hard, and adulting, fails. It gets zero out of five stars a lot of the time. And so it's really important to have someone who can empathize with you in that regard. Um, in Frank's uh, second question, Dr. Worthy, you mentioned your, your answer to it. You mentioned uh, the betrayal in movies and stuff. And what I wanted to ask you was uh, last fall, Warner Brothers released Joker. And some in your field were very critical of the movie and they went as far as to like write op-eds in certain publications on how Hollywood needs to be careful with how they portray people with mental issues as someone that can become a serial killer. I think they're they're fearing that Hollywood portrays that anyone with a mental health issue is going to become a serial killer. So they wanted to push back against that. In your opinion, can films or certain forms of entertainment be harmful to your field and to the job that you do? That's an interesting question. I think I think normalizing anything is important. So seeing things on the big screen, seeing them on TV brings awareness to things. But 
but then it also becomes important with accuracy and truth. Uh, how how well are you portraying something, right? Is this really what bipolar disorder looks like? Is this really what schizophrenia or anxiety or depression looks like? Um, because people people are unaware, and I think it with that movie in particular, there were there was space I think for both praise and criticism. Um, I think like the pseudo Bolvar affect that he had, where he could laugh for no reason or he would cry, but it didn't really match with the emotion he was experiencing in the moment. Right. That's a real thing. I think that was a very interesting presentation of it, right? Because a lot of people are, are unaware that, that that exists, um, but it's a real condition. And I think part of the struggle of the movie is, you know, while it's accurate that yes, people like the Arthur Fleck character, the Joker, um, didn't have a lot of money, so they're seen in these kind of crowded, overworked community mental health centers. He had a social worker, and he's on a whole bunch of medications, and we don't know what his diagnosis is, which I thought was problematic, seven pills and no diagnosis. But nonetheless, you know, she's... Although that does happen. That it, does oh, happen. It, does, it does happen. <laughs> but she's overworked to capacity, which is very true for a lot of social workers. They're doing their best, but they've got caseloads of a billion. There's no way just to keep I, I can add on to what I think she was going to say. Um, I think, well, she was talking about the social worker and just how overworked, um, and that's real, right? There there mm-hmm. aren't enough resources for people who are not just low income, but also middle class. My wait list, um, not my wait list, my schedule, I'm already scheduled until April. Wow. Um, and that's actually pretty good. Um, some of my colleagues are scheduled into early summer. Um, many of us are not taking new patients right now for psychotherapy. Um, Dr. Worthy's caseload, I don't even want to know what her caseload is. Um, we both worked in the community in D.C. at two different mental health organizations um, with lower income, with children and family. And probably at any given time, we each had, I don't know, maybe 30 children that we were seeing. Mm-hmm. And that included their families, that included touching base with their teachers, sometimes their doctors. So there just aren't enough resources that are out there. Um, so some of that that's in the movie is true, but, you know, they have to make money. So they do show extremes. Um, but I think a lot of the media and a lot of the shows actually get people who are in mental health to collaborate with them so that they are not too far out of bounds. I think the film did a beautiful job of really recognizing all the early childhood trauma that the character suffered and his development and how, you know, the abandonment issues, the early childhood abuse, the head trauma (laughs) that he suffered. And then he just kind of blocked all of that out in adulthood. Um, The kind of social ostracism he suffered as an adult, the violence with the train scene and kind of other violent confrontations. I think um, what I was going was that it can be problematic and that even though they did this beautiful trauma background for this person, a lot of the violence got linked to the mental illness as opposed to the history of trauma and the social ostracism and the bullying in adulthood. Um, and I think that's where it becomes problematic, right, as we start to associate the violence with the mental health, the mental is- illness issues versus mm-hmm. the trauma and developmental issues that more than likely played a role because people with mental illness are not really more likely to offend in terms of violent crime than the general population. It's like three to five percent. It's so interesting you just said that because as you were talking, I was thinking up until a certain point how resilient he was. 
Mm -hmm. So he had had these mental health issues his entire life, yet he had been resilient. He was taking care of his own medication. He was going to get his own treatment. He was employed. He was taking care of his mother. And, you know, it was about the Joker. But I think it glossed over the fact that he was resilient. He was a functional adult with mental illness on medication, but taking care of himself and someone else. And people who with mental illness, that's who they are. They're working with us. They're on the train with us. They're with us in the grocery store. They're living their lives just as the rest of us do, except instead of having a disorder that is visible, they have one that's invisible. Um, Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. I was the only other thing I wanted to say to this um, about this movie, and I apologize because I know the question was directed specifically to you, but there's there was a quote in the movie, um, and I'm going to get it wrong, but basically saying that people with mental illnesses are expected to act as if they're normal. Um, and that has stuck with me since I saw it because it's absolutely true. Um, you know, if, if we see someone in a wheelchair, we're not going to expect them to get up and hold the door open for us. So why would we expect someone with the mental illness, with bipolar disorder or schizophrenia or borderline, whatever disorder, to act exactly as, you know, quote unquote, we expect a normal person to do. And I think it's unfortunate that just because they have an invisible illness, um, we negate the fact that it is an illness. Absolutely. I'm I'm over here just nodding my head like you're bringing up some great, great points. So I have been greedy enough. I'm going to get you out of here with this final question is for you, Dr. Mills. Um, And that is and I hope it's a good question. Let's see. So black people, (laughs) uh, (laughs) specifically black women, routinely criticize the medical field for being insensitive to their physical pain and their complaints when they're being uh, cared for. I was wondering when you consider the historic trauma that we face over generations and presently, is there is it is it any possible difference when it comes to diagnosing African Americans versus other races due to the trauma that we have experienced over time and like I said in in present day. Um, you know, I love that you say historic trauma because there is a thing called historical or generational trauma. I'm not sure if you're aware of that, um, but it's actually the trauma that we, a younger generation, experiences, the emotional trauma we experience because of the direct trauma that our ancestors experienced. And unfortunately, within the Black community, we still experience this trauma um, just in a different format, perhaps a little more subtle um, although maybe not so much as subtle as we would think. But right. yeah, um, we do get treatment differently. We are overdiagnosed with certain things. Um, schizophrenia, we're overdiagnosed with schizophrenia. ADHD, we're overdiagnosed with ADHD. Um, but we're also underdiagnosed with other things. And I think a lot of professionals, even people that I work with who I think are excellent psychologists, people who have trained me and, and taught me and have, um, you know, inspired me and all of that, they even sometimes forget that um, the African-Americans that they work with have a trauma that they are not discussing that needs to be considered. Um, I've worked with people, senior citizens, who will talk about the racial experiences they've had years ago, and someone will say, oh, well, that's not important because it happened 20, 30, 40 years ago. And I have to say, no. They discussed it today. 
which means that it is still important today, which means it does still affect your mental health today, which means we need to consider it in our full conceptualization, in our diagnosis and in our treatment. Um, I don't want to go on a tangent because this is the whole subject. It could be a whole entirely um, other episode. Um, but it does uh, it does affect um, how we're treated. But I do think Dr. Worthy said this, I think the first question um, when talking about mistrust, and I think it's more so the younger generations um, that are really kind of latching onto this issue when looking at the people that they are treating or the people who are treating them, um, whether they want a black psychologist or a white psychologist or Hispanic or Asian. Because um, if I think of older generations, you know, they wanted the white doctor, mm -hmm. right? Because what, what can a black person, they don't know anything, they can't treat me. And I think part of that is, one, we're becoming more powerful in who we are. Um, and two, we just know that we're out there. Right. It's more it's easier for me to go find an African-American female physician now than it was for my mother to find one, you know, 20, 30 years ago. Um, but I think I also put the ownership, though, on us as a community when we go to see um, providers, whether it's a mental health provider or even a medical provider. We really have to be clear in what we are experiencing and we really have to kind of let go of. Um, kind of this wall that we sometimes create because we're afraid to be vulnerable. We're afraid to, you know, let people in, let a stranger in, let a professional in, or let our true selves out. So, you know, kind of playing devil's advocate, if we want people to treat us, or not treat us, but um, diagnose us accurately, we have to make sure that we are giving them accurate information and not be afraid to speak up when something doesn't look right. We have to also find our voice in that way. But I think this is a, a huge issue that really goes down um, back to, you know, just institutional systemic racism and historical trauma that we don't talk about enough. Most people have never heard of it. They don't even know what it is um, and is rarely considered at all when you think of African-American people, although Native Americans um, and Jewish people is talked about a lot. We're just kind of forgotten yeah. in that whole process. Whether you want to add anything to that? No, I think you got it. Well, I cannot say enough um, glowing things about you too, and I sh I'm sure Frank and I will say more uh, when we wrap up the episode. But um, I can't thank you enough for coming on here. I think it's a very important topic, as I said at the beginning of the interview. Um, and just thank you for your expertise, your professionalism, and for what you do. You're helping people out there. Uh, and I hope people found this informative. And I would recommend listening to it twice because you may miss something the first listen and catch it on the second round. Um, I'll let Frank take us out. But again, ladies, thank you so much for coming on. I really appreciate thank it. You. Thank, thank you. It's the platform. Yeah, again, just thank you, Dr. Worthy, Dr. Mills. It was it was it was our honor. Uh, that you guys spent so much time with us. We know we asked extra questions, but we, we just thank you that you facilitated a conversation that it sorely needs to be had, um, not obviously in the black community, but just in, the, in, the, in America in general with so many things going on uh, that people are dealing with. We just thank you for this. Um, and we just, like I said, again, continue to listen, subscribe. You can listen to this interview 
um, on iTunes. So definitely subscribe. And, and that way you can never miss great stuff as it comes out. So again, thank you, ladies. We love you. We hope to have you on again very soon. And uh, that's it. We love you. Thank you. Thank you, gentlemen. Have a great evening. Thank you for listening to Politically Entertaining. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast via iTunes and visit politicallyentertaining.com for the latest in political news and updates.